a little bit about our speaker. And the topic, if you're not familiar while you're here, it's right here, Viva Cristo Rey and the Cristeros and Martyrs of the Mexican Revolution. And our speaker tonight, in case you don't know him, he is awesome already. So Christopher Check is Director of Development at Catholic Answers. All you Catholic Answers fans, fanatics, workers, here you go. A graduate of Rice University in Houston, Texas, he served for seven years as a field artillery officer in the Marine Corps, awesome, after which he served for 19 years as vice president of the Rockford Institute. He writes and lectures on the lives of Catholic heroes and villains. He has lectured at parishes, schools, colleges, seminarians across the U.S. and Europe, including the University of London. The Serbian Writers' Union in Belgrade, the Pontifical Augustinian University in Rome, awesome, and the Irish Rose Saloon, Rockford, Illinois. His writings have appeared in many Catholic and secular journals, and I'm not going to list those. He is the creator of the Lepanto Lectures, recorded lectures in church history, about which Father Peter Stravinskas declared, Christopher Czech has performed a valuable service in providing history historically reliable information on certain neurologic topics often used to discredit the church. Each lecture is presented in an engaging style and full of facts geared to make an intelligent response to various, quote, black legends. I recommend these talks most enthusiastically. He and his wife, Jacqueline, have four sons. His third son, John Paul, was blessed 18 years ago in your utero by the Holy Father and has gone on to apply all that grace to the art of brewing beer. Yay. Thank you, Jesus, for John Paul. The Czechs breed and show Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, famed champions of the Stuart Guards under the kennel name Top Meadow Cavaliers, named for G.K. Chesterton's Beaconsfield Estate. Chris's chief enthusiasms, enthusiasms include Irish drinking songs, finding the best wine for the least amount of money, like it, telling stories, and throwing parties. So please help me welcome Chris Check. I, um, I especially like being able to give a talk and drink a beer at the same time. So, okay, thanks in the back there. Yeah, all right. So I want to start with uh, a thought experiment. I want all of you to imagine going to confession on a Saturday only to find an empty confessional. At the rectory, the door is ajar. You step inside, you call out for your pastor, and you're greeted with silence. A quick drive to neighboring churches yields the same results. You can't find a priest. So exasperated, you drive to a church far from your home. A few of the faithful are in the parking lot, And one thinks that a priest might be by the week after next, but he's not sure. There's a young woman in the group who hopes that he's right. She has changed her wedding date four times already for lack of a priest, 
and her fiancé thinks they should just, you know, go ahead and have a civil ceremony. There's a couple there with a new baby, and they cannot find a priest to baptize him. The last time anyone in the group attended the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass was months ago. So if you can imagine this nightmare, you will have some sense of the profound evil that gripped Mexico nearly a century ago. Driven by Marxist errors, Masonic superstitions, lust for power, and plain old greed, revolutionaries declared war on the Catholic Church. In brutality and blood, they seized control of the government, and in 1917 they wrote a socialist constitution that was packed with anti-clerical articles, the aim of which was to marginalize the influence of the church in Mexico, if not drive her from Mexico altogether. The revolutionary government confiscated church property, Episcopal residences, hospitals, schools, monasteries, convents. Clerical attire was forbidden in public. Priests could not express their political opinions even in private conversation. And priests had no legal identity. In other words, they were not able to seek justice in the Mexican court. If you were a priest and I stole your car, you would have no recourse in the Mexican courts. To take a religious vow became a criminal, criminal act. All the foreign clergy, that is, clergy who were not Mexican, were deported out of the country. So unable to operate under these conditions, the Mexican episcopacy, after agonized deliberations with the Holy See, on July 31, 1926, suspended public worship, and saved three who went into hiding, left the country in exile. The following day, for the first time in more than 400 years in Mexico, no priest ascended ad altari dei to offer the holy sacrifice of the mass. So now Mexican priests face two choices cooperation with the anti-Christian government, or a life on the run. Those who chose the former were forced to abandon their parishes, to move into the cities, and to register with their state governments, which now had the power to set clerical quotas. Just like the United States, by the way, of course, I know you all know Mexico is divided, it is a federal republic divided into what is it, 30, 33 states plus the federal district, something like that. In the state of Tabasco, Governor Tomas Canabal restricted the number of priests in his state to six. So that would be one priest for every 30,000 Mexicans. And he insisted that these priests take wives. In true Marxist fashion, he renamed his capital city, which was San Juan Batista, St. John the Baptist, to Via Hermosa, right? And he named his children Lenin, Lucifer, and Satan. He had a business card that said, 
Governor Tomas Canabal, governor of Tabasco, the personal enemy of God. A courageous minority of priests refused to register. They ranged the countryside by night and in disguise, doing their best to bring the sacraments to the faithful. Priests who were caught were arrested, fined, jailed, and sometimes tortured and executed. By January of 1927, the persecution of the church drove the faithful to conclude that they had exhausted all peaceful means. The National League for the Defense of Religious Liberty, an organization formed by middle-class Catholic intellectuals, had circulated a petition that was signed by two million Mexicans demanding reform of the Mexican Constitution. Their cries were ignored, and very soon the government denied that the petition existed. Next, the League called for a nationwide boycott by the faithful of transportation services, energy, entertainment. But Mexico's wealthy, including many Catholics, felt the sting of the boycott, and they complained to the government. Federal police were sent in to break up the picket lines. Peaceful protest devolved into street violence. The president of Mexico at the time was a man named Plutarco Elias Calles. He was known as El Turco to the Mexicans because of the common belief that he was of Lebanese descent. And to the Mexicans, anybody from the Middle East was referred to as a Turk. Calles certainly displayed the ruthlessness and the temper of a Turk. In 1926, he had added teeth to the persecutions with additions to the Mexican penal code. The Calles Law, as it came to be known, called for uniform enforcement throughout the country of the 1917 Constitution's anti-clerical articles and threatened severe punishment for those in violation and for government officials who failed to enforce them. As long as I am president of Mexico, the Constitution of 1917 will be obeyed, he raged. For Plutarco Calles, the church represented the past. A past, he said, that I strongly wish to see liquidated. Now, Plutarco Calles' own past was troubled. Illegitimacy, he, a drunk for a father, the loss of a teaching position because of some peculiar behavior in the classroom, a string of failed businesses, a bankruptcy. By his own admission, as a child, an altar boy, he had stolen poor bo- uh, uh, money from the poor box to buy candy. As an adult, he declared his hatred of Christianity with pride. For all of his hubris, however, for all of his arrogance, Plutarco Caius was absolutely right about one thing. Nothing so embodied the history and identity of Mexico as the Catholic Church. From its founding, Mexico was altogether Catholic, militantly Catholic. The faith and its propagation were what brought the Spanish conquistadores to the New World, and the fire with which they brought Christianity across the Atlantic was of the same white heat 
as that fire which had driven seven centuries fighting Islam in the Reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula. Ferdinand and Isabella conquered the Moorish kingdom of Granada in 1492 without pausing to wipe the blood from her sword Spain turned her fiercely Catholic heart, a heart forged in seven centuries, fighting the enemies of Jesus Christ toward the new world. Now, were some among the conquistadores motivated by the possibility of untold wealth? Were others driven by a kind of reckless desire for high adventure? Of course. Were all funded by a crown, the Spanish crown, determined above all to spread Christendom to the new world? The answer is yes. Did Hernando Cortez strive to build a Christian land, the policies of which were informed by the gospel? Again, yes. Was he successful? Absolutely he was. In the Protestant United States of America, our modus operandi as far as the native population was concerned, was what? What do we call it? We all learned this in high school. Manifest destiny, which is kind of a nice way of saying what? Keep pushing the brown people towards the Pacific Ocean. But in contrast, the Spanish Catholic attitude toward the native population, and by the way, the French Catholic attitude in Canada, right, towards the native population was what? Convert and integrate. That is, once the baby killers, the cannibals, and the demon worshipers had been vanquished. Did the plan work? It worked magnificently. Mexicans of Indian blood would paint pictures to rival those of European masters. They would master the tongue of Cicero and the philosophy of Aristotle. And they would one day teach both of these to the great-grandchildren of the conquistadores in the lecture halls of, Mag of Mexico's magnificent universities. In short, the Spanish transformed Mexico in Christ. As in medieval Europe, the liturgical calendar and the sacraments leavened the activities of domestic and civil life. It's very difficult for Americans where we live with this fiction of the separation of church and state, where this separation of church and state is sacrosanct, sacrosanct, to understand the depth to which the faith penetrated human experience in Mexico. But without this understanding, we will not be able to understand the war that was provoked by this 1917 constitution and the brutal enforcement of the Calles Law 10 years later. This war was called La Cristiara. Its heroes were the Cristeros. They were armed, land-owning peasants rising up in defense of the faith in the very tradition of seven centuries of Spanish Catholic militancy that had come before. All right, back to our story. Enforcement of the Calles Law drove the bishops to suspend public worship. The suspension of public worship drove the Mexican peasant class to take up arms. The question is, was this what the bishops desired? In the case of a few, 
The answer is clearly yes. Bishop Leopoldo Lari Torres of Tacambaro had written to Plutarco Calles telling him that the bishops were prepared to seal their protest, quote, in blood. The fiery tactics of Bishop Francisco Orozco Jimenez of Guadalajara made Rome very nervous. He had endured three exiles for his public opposition to the government. Bishop Jose de Jesus Manriquez Izarate of Huelta circulated tracts condemning Calles and denounced him from the pulpit of his cathedral. He financed and supplied the Cristeros and even considered taking the field with them. For most of the bishops, however, the suspension of public worship was a nonviolent protest designed to bring popular pressure against the government. Now, this nonviolent approach was shared by a man named Jose Anaclito Gonzalez Flores, the heroic scholar and founder of the Catholic action organization Union Popular. But as street demonstrations grew into street violence, Flores joined forces with the National League for the Defense of Religious Liberty, led by a man named Rene Capistran Garza. Together, these two men sounded a nationwide call to arms. Flores told his loyal followers that they were headed for Calvary. If one of you should ask me what sacrifice I am asking of you in order to seal the pact that we are going to celebrate, I will tell you in two words, your blood. If you want to proceed, stop dreaming of places of honor, military triumphs, braid, luster, victories, authority over others. Mexico needs a tradition of blood in order to cement its free life of tomorrow. For that work, my life is available, and for that tradition, I ask yours. Flores would eventually give his life after an ordeal of brutal torture during which he was hung by his thumbs while federal soldiers skinned the soles of his feet. Beatified by Pope St. John Paul II in 1999, Flores had not limited his work to the organization of the military uprising. His Union Popular built programs of catechetical instruction for children and adults and organized relief for the poor. Flores knew that a military victory would be hollow if there were no Catholic Mexico to replace revolutionary Mexico. When the Cristeros took up their arms in January 1927, they had very few arms to take up, only their battle cry, Viva Cristo Rey, long live Christ the King, rising almost simultaneously in small towns and villages in a dozen western states, including Zacatecas, Alisco, Guanajuato, Durango, Michoacan, and Colima, hundreds of small and not particularly well-organized bands of sharecroppers and rancheros bearing macheres and hunting rifles took over local municipalities by disarming one by one federal garrisons as well as garrisons of the local militia. Lack of a long-term plan, however, took some of the steam out of these initial victories. Capistran Garza was not the man to organize an armed rebellion. His job, as he saw it, 
was to cross the border into the United States and stir up sympathy for the Cristero cause among American Catholics, sympathy that would translate into large gifts of cash with which to buy desperately needed arms and ammunition. Capistran Garza's American sojourn yielded almost no fruit. The American bishops were reluctant to support an armed rebellion against a government that enjoyed the full diplomatic recognition of the United States. The Bishop of Corpus Christi uh, told Capistran Garza that the people of his diocese did not like Mexicans. Bishop Francis Kelly of Oklahoma and Tulsa, all you Irishmen will be very proud of these men, Bishop Francis Kelly of Oklahoma and Tulsa and his friend, Archbishop Iron Mike Curley. When was the last time we had a bishop whose nickname was Iron Mike, right? Of Baltimore stood apart from their peers, doubtless because these men had sought better to understand the conditions in Mexico and the motives of the Cristeros. Lay Catholic groups such as the Knights of Columbus did not come through with financial support as had been hoped, although Mexican Knights would soon be martyred. Garza very nearly succeeded in securing a gift of about a half a million dollars from a small circle of Catholic businessmen led by William F. Buckley Sr., right, the father of the man who founded the National Review magazine. William F. Buckley Sr. was the president of the Pentempec Oil Company, but at the last minute, a deal that had been months in the making collapsed, and why it did to this day remains a point of dispute among Cristero historians. But it was one event in a complex international intrigue involving the Holy See, the Mexican Episcopal Committee, the Mexican Revolutionary Government, and most powerful of all, the United States State Department. Capistran Garza was right about one thing. He knew that American support would dictate the outcome of the war. He was wrong in thinking that he ever had a chance, alas, of winning it. Even as he was trying to fill the Cristero war chest with American dollars, most of the Mexican bishops represented by the secretary of the Mexican Episcopal Committee, a man named Bishop Pascual Diaz, who it looks like was the man to scuttle the Buckley gift, were looking for a negotiated settlement. And the men who were fighting and dying in the field were never invited to the table. Knowing little of the details of the diplomatic bargaining that their uprising had generated, the Cristeros pressed ahead with their war for the soul of Mexico. In some regions, they were clearly winning, and in others, they were holding their own, taking over one rural village at a time. The Cristeros began not only to or better organize their army, but also to set up Cristero-led governments in the towns and municipalities that they had liberated. They controlled wide portions of Zacatecas, the region of Colcaman in western Michoacan, sent formal written notification to Plutarco Calles that they were seceding from Mexico. Cristero governments collected taxes for the war effort, but they also discharged ordinary functions of civil government, including the administration of schools, and they imposed, by the way, very heavy fines for truancy. Cristero lawmakers took a very hard line on immoral behavior. Cohabiting couples were required to separate or marry. 
prostitution, gambling, and public drunkenness in Cristero-led municipalities were severely punishment, punished. Rape could draw, draw a sentence of death. Catholic social justice, which had been expressed so eloquently, eloquently uh, just three decades prior in the papal encyclical of Leo XIII, right, Rerum Novarum, informed Cristero economic policy, which forbade speculation in corn and other crops, which were afflicted by shortage resulting from the war. The war raged for 30 months. The Mexican government attempted to deny Cristero victories, but the reality was that the Catholic soldiers had defeated federal units in operations ranging, ranging from large-scale cavalry engagements on the plains of Jalisco to guerrilla operations in the mountains of Durango, and always in spite of severe shortages of ammunition. The American military attaché in his correspondence with Washington described, this is the quote, the remarkable tenacity of the Cristeros and the, in contrast, indiscipline of the Mexican Federal Army. Now, the man who had turned the Cristero Army into a serious fighting force was a man named Enrique Gorstiera, who took over operations in June 1927, six months after the uprising. Gorstiera was not a practicing Catholic, but he was a soldier of vast professional skill. The 37-year-old general came to sympathize, however, with the Cristero cause when his wife gave birth to a son. After a lengthy and difficult search for a priest to baptize the child, he last found the priest, but not after he had combed the streets of his city of Monterey and witnessed widespread drug use and prostitution. And so he concluded that the revolutionary government's suppression of the Catholic Church was responsible for the moral rot into which his city had sunk. As chief of the Cristero army, he admired the strict moral code by which the Cristeros lived, one that stood in stark contrast to the behavior of federal troops who were frequently drunk or stoned on marijuana, who terrorized the civilian population with pillage and rape. While they often spread the lives of captured federal soldiers, Cristeros who were captured in battle could expect no quarter. Their executions would be preceded by sadistic tortures designed to get the Catholic soldiers to reveal military secrets and to deny the faith. So electric shock, burning with uh, blow torches, hanging by the thumbs, broken bones. Often they would be dragged behind horses and then quartered alive, right? A common federal uh, torture was to flay, you know, skin the soles of the feet of the victim and then force him to walk on rock salt. Cristero prisoners died bravely, and the accounts of their deaths inspired their brothers-in-arms. Priests captured by the Mexican government, whether they were actively serving with the Cristeros or just had simply refused to register with the Mexican government, were hung or shot. Among them the 62-year-old Father Mateo Correa Magallanes, 
who refused to tell federal officers what Cristeros had told him in the confessional. So sort of a, um, a Mexican St. John Nepomucin, right? Most famous, of course, of the martyr priests from this age, though not formally Cristero, is Blessed Miguel Pro, who died before the firing squad with his arms outstretched like our Lord crucified, shouting, Viva Cristo Rey. Calles ordered the execution photographed, hoping that the grisly images of the execution of Miguel Pro would discourage Catholics supporting the war. The photos, in fact, had the opposite effect, and so soon Plutarco Calles was forbidding the newspapers to publish them. All you ladies here will be interested. Public sympathy for the Cristeros also took the shape of an extensive logistic network run by the feminine brigades of St. Joan of Arc. These women devised very creative ways to keep their soldiers supplied. They, they designed special vests for, snuggly, uh, for smuggling um, uh, ammunition out of federal factories and secret worship workshops for the production of homemade explosives. So, for example, they would take, you know, um, jelly tins or uh, like old fruit, fruit cans or something like that and reshape them into hand grenades. Under the government's nose, ammunition would pass from one street vendor to the next, buried you know, under the vegetables, under the produce. Because of the wide variety of calibers represented in the Cristero arsenal, right, so pistols, hunting rifles, captured federal weapons, we have a wide variety of arsenals, what the Joan of Arcs would do is they would take cartridges and they would reshape them by hand to answer the demand for ammunition of different sizes. They even fashioned ammunition out of unexploded aircraft bombs that they would collect from the battlefield at night. These courageous ladies also carried messages from one unit to another written on silk and hidden in the soles of their shoes. All of these activities of the Joan of Arcs were carried out under an oath of secrecy, 25,000 ladies, young ladies, mostly young unmarried women between the ages of you know, 15 and 25 served in the Joan of Arcs. There is no evidence that any of these ladies ever broke this oath. The heroic efforts of the Joan of Arc brigades notwithstanding, the Cristero army never had enough ammunition to win a decisive victory. Too often in the heat of battle, they had to break away in order to live to fight another day. On several occasions, Cristero soldiers were reduced to rolling boulders down the hills. They referred to them as Our Fathers and Hail Marys, that they would roll down the hill on advancing troops. Although the federal army was badly led and plagued by high rates of desertion, they were never short of ammunition, willingly supplied by the United States government, including aircraft. And in at least one battle, probably more than one, American pilots provided air support for the Mexican Federal Army against the Catholic soldiers. Stalemate, albeit one that would last for years, seemed to be the best for which the Cristeros could hope. Plutarco Calles felt threatened nonetheless. The war was costing his government 96 million pesos a year. This was about a third of his annual budget. 
This figure did not include the harm to his economy in reduced agricultural production for which his scorched earth policy was responsible. Worse, perhaps, was his policy of relocating some 30% of the rural population of Mexico to urban areas in an effort to eliminate the Cristero support network. And the effect of this is, is it was provoking emigration out of Mexico. Half a million Mexicans fled the country. This is the first wave of, in 1929 of California's uh, Mexican immigrants. By the end of the fighting, military deaths approached about 100,000. Most of these deaths were federal troops. Plutarco Calles engineered the election of his hand-picked successor, a man named Emilio Portes Gil, though he still called the shots from not so far behind the scenes. Calles feared that the Cristeros government would never be defeated. They are annihilating us, he wrote to Gil privately. At last, the Mexican government came to the bargaining table. The man who negotiated the settlement was the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, a man named Dwight Morrow, whose daughter Anne married, uh, excuse me, married anybody? Charles Lindbergh, right? It's is one of history's great ironies, of course. I don't know if you know. Um, Charles Lindbergh, of course, is one of, a, in addition to being the first man to fly across the Atlantic solo, his plane, you know, was built right down here in what is now um, solar turbines, right down there by the airport. Sure, you all knew that. You all are from San Diego. Look, I'm not from San Diego. I knew that. Okay. Anyway, uh, so, uh, but Lindbergh was one of America's most famous isolationists. In other words, he, he, Lindbergh worked very hard to keep later, after this story, to keep the United States out of the Second World War. All right? He was part of that American, America First Committee. He tried to keep the United States out of the Second World War. So this is kind of one of history's great ironies. Dwight Morrow had been a meddler in European and foreign affairs since he was a J.P. Morgan banker brokering loans for the English during the First World War. So, I mean, I, you can just imagine what the dinner table conversations were like between Morrow and his son-in-law, um, you know, uh, Charles Lindbergh. Anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting far afield here. We don't need to admire Morrow's interventionist politics uh, to marvelous diplomatic skill. Calles and Gil knew that if the Mexican bishops would restore public worship, the armed resistance would fade. Pope Pius XI would permit the restoration of public worship only if he believed that the persecution of the church would be relaxed and that church property would be restored. Caius and Gill were not willing to change the Constitution, but they hinted, you know, enforcement could be relaxed. For his part, Ambassador Morrow wanted one thing, stability in America's southern neighbor where American corporations, particularly oil corporations, were accustomed to making vast sums of money. In other words, internecine strife in Mexico was bad for American business. There's Calvin Coolidge and Plutarco Caius walking arm in arm. The same Coolidge administration that refused to acknowledge the Marxist government 
of Russia backed the Marxist government of Mexico. To Coolidge now, the matter was simply one of imposing American will. And Morrow, with his very famous ham and eggs diplomacy, had been working toward this end since he arrived in Mexico in November of 1927. A year and a half later, on June 21st, 1929, Mexico City's Archbishop Ruiz y Flores and Bishop Pascual Diaz, along with Portes Gil, issued statements to the press. The bishop's statement expressed a vague hope that the restoration of public worship, here's the quote, would lead the Mexican people, animated by a spirit of goodwill, to cooperate in all moral efforts undertaken for the welfare of all the people of the country. Portes Gil assured the people of Mexico that the Constitution did not intend to destroy the identity of the Catholic Church, nor to interfere with her spiritual functions, right? He was prepared to hear from any person, whether a dignitary of some church or simply a private individual, any complaints he may have regarding injustices which may be committed by undue application of laws. He added, religious instruction could take place within schools, with, excuse me, within churches, but not in schools, and that any law of Mexico was subject to the appeal of one of her citizens. So, on these two very thin statements of fragile peace, the arreglos, was brokered. Ruiz y Flores and Diaz gave the most generous interpretation possible to Pope Pius XI's demand that the church property be restored insofar as could be reasonably expected, Ruiz y Flores told Dwight Morrow. Portes Gil said that the church would have to give the government time to vacate buildings currently occupied. Gil declared amnesty for all Cristeros, including free rail passes to return to their homes. Officers were permitted to keep their sidearms and their horses. After the meeting, the two bishops drove to the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe and prayed at the high altar. Public worship was restored. The faithful packed the churches. Pope Pius XI sent word to the Cristero soldiers asking them to lay down their arms. And over the next three months, in obedience to the Holy Father, this is exactly what they did. Alas, the story does not end well. Three years later, in an encyclical, Acerba Animi, Pius XI explained why he had asked the Catholic soldiers who had knocked the anti-Catholic government of Mexico back on its heels to lay down their arms. Why? He had to restore the sacraments to Mexico's faithful, even if the conditions under which the church could operate were not ideal. But now he admitted, the favorable settlement for which we had hoped has not been forthcoming. On the contrary, within only a few months of the reglos, signs that all were not well were abundant. Many churches, schools, rectories remained in the hands of the Mexican revolutionary government. Ruiz y Flores and Diaz attempted to meet 
with the president, but they were ignored. And Gilles' successor, a man named Pascual Ortiz Rubio, also handpicked by Caius, told the bishops, Portes Gil promised you nothing. Meanwhile, the surrender of the Cristeros was not proceeding as hoped. Soldiers who were not willing to move out of their states were taken prisoner and they were executed. The annihilation of Catholic militants after the 1929 agreement lasted for several years. There were mass executions in Jalisco. Cristero veterans were hunted down until the 1950s and killed. It is not known how many thousands of them lost their lives after this war had been declared over. 1934 and 1935 were the worst years for the church in Mexico. This time, most state governments just closed the churches themselves. Priests were again on the run. It's in this period, right, 1934, 1935, that Graham Greene's whiskey priest fights persecution and his own weaknesses in Greene's brilliant novel, if you haven't read it, you should, The Power and the Glory. Priests had practically vanished. In 1934, there were 334 priests, registered priests, to minister to 15 million Mexicans. School teachers in Michoacan were forced to take a public oath of atheism and to promise to teach against the Catholic religion. Bishop Diaz's Episcopal Palace was never returned. He was thrown in a jail cell for a time, and then he was forced to rent rooms where he could find them. And frankly, there were few people who were willing to rent rooms to Bishop Diaz because they felt they would lose their property. He died, despised by the Mexican government, and he was not altogether loved by the Catholic militants who felt he had betrayed their cause. Probably it was Diaz's voice that at last convinced Pius XI to call for an end to the Cristero uprising. It's easy, we often think, to judge the actions of men with the perspective history gives us. However, no just judgment can be rendered on the members of the hierarchy who sought an end to the Cristero War without understanding this fact, my friends. The church is not a political movement. She is an institution for the care of souls. Pius XI and his bishops needed first and foremost to restore the sacraments to the Mexican faithful, even if the circumstances under which they were to be dispensed were trying. There are questions yet for historians to answer. Was Pius XI not well advised, for example? Or was he aware just how far the United States was prepared to go in backing the Mexican revolutionary government? We know the Holy Father's infallibility does not extend to matters of international politics. But it is reasonable to conclude that he negotiated in good faith, which is more than can be said for the Mexican government or the United States State Department. Recent beatifications and canonizations of the martyrs of the Mexican Revolution by Pope St. John Paul II and by Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI call to our attention the ferocity with which the church was persecuted not long ago in our own backyard. Other than diabolical madness, what else can explain 
a 14-year-old boy, blessed Jose Sanchez del Rio, whose only crimes were love of God, and a burning desire to defend Holy Mother Church, losing his life to torture and a firing squad at the hands of his own government. And what kind of fervor so fired the hearts of Jose and his fellow Cristeros that they rose up against all practical hope to defend the kingship of Jesus Christ. Both extremes are very much outside the realm of the American Catholic experience, where even among the devout, the church plays at best a peripheral role in our daily political and social life. How many American Catholics today, for example, attempt to put into effect with their shopping habits, for example, the church's teaching on questions of economic justice? How many American Catholics have made a serious effort to understand the church's teaching on just war and to plumb the mind of the Holy See on questions of international affairs? However, history may judge the Cristeros, there is no doubt. They put their faith into action in defense of Jesus Christ against his enemies. The Mexican church's climb out of the hell of the revolution has been slow. It is not finished. Mexican school children, to the extent that they even hear the story of the Cristeros, are likely to get the socialist spin. Well into the 1970s, Catholic schools received regular inspection to ensure use of government textbook. They were allowed to teach values, right, but not religion. Not until the 1980s were the anti-clerical articles repealed from the Mexican Constitution. Not until the late 1990s with the beatifications and canonizations of the martyrs of the Mexican Revolution by Pope St. John Paul II and in 2005, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI did a sympathetic public awareness of the Cristeros service. Even so, a thick anti-clerical sentiment remains, especially in the media, which fumed about opening old wounds when Miss Mexico in 2007 wore a dress honoring the Cristeros. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. After Tertullian wrote these words, a century would pass before Constantine's Edict of Milan. How and when God will perfect the sacrifices of the Mexican martyrs is up to him. For our part, we can contemplate the ferocity with which the church was persecuted not long ago in her own backyard and the zeal of the faithful who defended her with Catholic hearts forged in centuries of fighting the enemies of Jesus Christ. Let's close tonight with the story of this magnificent boy. Come back one. Jose Sanchez del Rio. In 1913, in the state of Michoacan, Jose was born to Macario and Mario Sanchez del Rio. Macario and Maria were cattle ranchers who loved Jesus Christ with all their hearts and who reared their four children, of whom Jose was the third, to do the same. Jose cultivated a strong devotion to the Blessed Virgin of Guadalupe, and he said his rosary every day with great care. He instructed the other young children of his town in the Catholic faith, and he encouraged them to make holy hours before the Blessed Sacrament. Jose was especially good at marbles, and his, he had skill with riding horses, and he learned to care for them and to ride well. When Jose was 13 years old, his older brothers, Macario and Miguel, left home to join the Cristeros. Jose 
long to join his brothers, but his mother forbade it. For a year, he begged his mother to let him go. Mother, he said, will you deny me the chance to go to heaven and so soon? At last, his mother relented with tears in her eyes, watched her 14-year-old son ride off to join the crusade. The crucero commander in Jose's town refused the boy's effort to enlist. So he made his way some 30 miles to the next town, Cotija, where he presented himself to the crucero commander, a man named Prudencio Mendoza. What contribution can so small a boy make to our army? He asked Jose. I ride well, came the answer. I know how to tend horses, clean weapons and spurs, and I know how to cook in the field. Mendoza was inspired by the boy's grit, so he made him the, he, he made him the aide of a Cristero general named Ruben Guizar Morphine. Soon Morphine promoted Jose to bugler. He would ride alongside the general in combat, carrying the battle standard and delivering the general's orders with his bugle. The soldiers of Jose's regiment, who were inspired by the boy's piety and fervor, nicknamed him Tarsicius, right? After the Roman altar boy, you all know that story, the Roman altar boy who died defending the Blessed Sacrament from the pagan mob. On February 6, 1928, the Cristero army was overwhelmed by the army of the Mexican government in fierce and bloody combat outside of Cotija. General Morphine's horse was shot, and it looked as if he would soon be captured by the federal troops. Jose leapt off his horse. General, he shouted, Take my mount and escape to safety. You are of far greater importance to the Cristoro cause than I am. Helping General Morphine up into the saddle, Jose delivered a hard swat across the backside of the horse and sent it galloping away. He then took up his rifle and his bandolier, taking cover behind a rock about halfway up a hill. He began picking off, one by one, the federal soldiers closing in around him. At last, the boy ran out of ammunition, and standing up, he shouted to the enemy, I am not surrendering. I've only stopped shooting at you because I've run out of cartridges. <laughs> when the federal soldiers saw that they had been fired upon by a boy, they were furious. They seized him. They put him in irons, and they dragged him off to a local church, which they had converted into a jail and also, by the way, a stable for their horses and a coop for their roosters that they used in cockfighting. These roosters, they had leashed to the church's monstrance. Jose scolded the soldiers for desecrating a holy place. Now, we will see, hombrecito, how tough you are, they sneered. To test his resolve, they forced Jose to watch as they took another captured Cristero, tortured him, and hung him from a telegraph pole. Far from looking away, Jose encouraged the man, telling him that they would soon meet up in heaven. 
For two days, Jose was locked in the sacristy of the church, during which time he wrote to his mother, telling her that he had no fear, that he welcomed the will of God, and looked forward to dying in his service. One night, Jose managed to untie the ropes that bound him. Unable to escape the church, he strangled the soldiers' roosters, and with his fingers, he gouged out the eyes of their horses. The following morning, when his captors asked him what had happened to the animals, Jose told them that a church was a place to worship God, not a barnyard. One soldier delivered such a blow to the boy's jaw that it knocked out a few teeth, but Jose, wiping the blood from his chin, told the soldiers that soon he would be meeting God and that he would ask him to bring confusion to these wicked men. The captain of the guard offered Jose his freedom in exchange for information about the Cristero army's location and the names of the people who were supplying it. Jose refused. So they pinned him down. They cut the skin off the soles of his feet. At 11 p.m. at night, they marched Jose to the cemetery on the edge of town, all the while telling him that if he would just deny Jesus Christ, they would spare his life. Viva Cristo Rey, shouted Jose, the rallying cry of the Cristeros. Viva Cristo Rey, over and over as he limped on his bloodied feet over the gravel and the twigs. Long live Christ the King. Long live the Virgin of Guadalupe. At the graveyard, Jose was pushed into a shallow grave. Struggling to his feet, he again shouted, Viva Cristo Rey! To avoid the sound of gunfire, the commander of the firing squad ordered his men to stab the boy with their bayonets. Viva Cristo Rey! Again, the bayonet into his side. Viva Santa Maria de Guadalupe! Say death to Christ the King and save your life, demanded the captain of the guard. Viva Cristo Rey. The captain lost all patience and drew his own pistol. The first bullet struck Jose in the head, knocking him to the ground. Blood poured forth from the wound, but the young boy refused to die. As his blood pooled next to his face, Jose, in a final act of defiance of the enemies of Jesus Christ, who had taken over his country, dipped his hand in his blood and with it drew a cross in the dirt. In a final act of devotion to Christ the King, he touched his lips to the cross. Six more bullets at point-blank range sent the boy martyr into the arms of his Savior. My brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, let us ask God that the blood of Jose Sanchez del Rio and of all of the Mexican martyrs through the intercession of Our Lady Guadalupe seed a revival of the faith in Mexico and indeed in all of North America. Mm-hmm.